0: Let's continue our discovery in the book of Genesis of what faith looks like, inspecting the very first man that was called to faith explicitly by God. His name is Abram or Abraham, as it was changed by God later. God called Abraham to faith, and he promised him distinctly two things, land and descendants. Despite the fact that his wife, Sarah, was barren, infertile, unable to have children, and despite the fact that they were very old, Abraham was 99 at the time that we're beginning, and Sarah is 89 or 90 at this time, uh, God still promised them descendants. And God promised them a son, specifically a son, whose name would be Isaac. He said, name him Isaac, laughter, because you laughed at me when I said you'd have a son. Uh, and he established circumcision as a sign of belonging to God's covenant people. And I want to direct your attention to the screens with Genesis 17, verse 21, where God ended last week, where, uh, the passage that we looked at. He said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, with your son Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So he says next year around this time is when Sarah is going to give birth, which means she's going to get pregnant very soon, despite the fact that she's barren and very old. Today, we're going to look at chapters 18 and 19, which is uh, going to take place, it it picks up soon after this conversation uh, from chapter 17, this conversation between uh, God and Abraham. Uh, And uh, we're going to take it in three sections. Chapter 18 will just be about how God visits Abraham. And then uh, we'll see in chapter 19, verses 1 through 29, how God visits Lot, And then there will be a very short epilogue uh, at the end of chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, I believe. Okay, let's start with God visits Abraham. We have to get going because these are huge chapters. And so that's your introduction. Okay, here we go. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 1, where God visits Abraham, it says, And the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, and Yahweh, appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes up and looked, and behold, three men... and said, Quick, three says of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Let's stop there for a sec. Abraham is by the oaks of Mamre, where he was at the end of chapter thirteen. That's where uh, he and Lot, they, they had become so prosperous that uh, they couldn't exist in the same same location. So Lot went toward wicked Sodom, and, uh, and Abraham stayed right there in that land, and that was the land that God promised him. Uh, he stayed where he was supposed to be. He stayed where God wanted him to be. And this is where Abraham settled with his household. This is where he built an altar. This is where he worshiped the Lord. And now in this place, God appears to Abraham in the heat of the day. And uh, he appears in the form of three messengers, three uh, three men uh, who, who show up. And uh, they're also going to be called angels in chapter 19. But angel just means messenger, okay? So uh, God appears to Abraham in, in, uh, in the form of these three men, and it seems as though he's then vicariously appearing to them. Uh, uh, they're representing him. They are couriers. They're heralds. Um, but it's possible that one of the men is kind of singled out as Yahweh God. And so some people think that uh, this, is, this is actually uh, pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus, 2,000 years before he's actually born, uh, that he kind of took a, a temporary human form just to show up to Abraham. And that's a big maybe, and I think you have to just leave it at a maybe. I don't think you can uh, build anything concrete on that because uh, at best, it's speculation. It's possible, but we don't know. Uh, in any case, that's not the focus that the author's trying to put in front of you. He's saying that God appeared. He's not trying to talk about Jesus. He's talking, to, talking about just God as Yahweh God. Jesus will, will, will be clarified as Scripture goes on. Uh, God appears to Abraham in the heat of the day, and it's uh, not clear whether or not Abraham knows that this is actually God visiting him. But he seems to at least in some sense associate this with God. Uh, He is, after all, uh, Lord of his land. He's he's, he's the patriarch of his household, and he's Lord of his land. And yet when he sees these three visitors, he runs up and he he bows down to them. uh, And he he seems very reverential in his behavior. He he says, oh, Lord, and he he serves them and stuff. So he seems to take the customary hospitality an extra step in uh, in serving these visitors. Verse 9. They, the men, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, she's in the tent. Yahweh said, see how one of the men seems to be Yahweh? Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Right? So he's repeating that. About this time next year, your wife is going to have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, meaning she had passed menopause. Uh, She no longer was able to have uh, children from old age, on top of the fact that she's barren. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? So at this point now, Abraham is sure that these men represent God since they repeat God's promise of a son next year, right? Chapter 17, God said, about this time next year, I'm going to come back and your wife's going to have a son. And now these three men say the same thing. So he knows who this is. He knows this is God. But what an odd question the men asked. They said, where is your wife, Sarah? Where is your wife, Sarah? See, if Abraham at that moment didn't know who they were, then this would be a very rude question for strangers to come up and be like, hey, where's your wife? That would be a very rude question to ask, and that's not the case. He does know who they are, and so when they ask, where's your wife? He tells them. He's like, Sarah's in the tent. And, and God asks not because he doesn't know where she is. Every time he asks, where is someone? He asks, uh, you know, Adam, where are you? Chapter three, verse nine, right? He asks uh, Cain, where's Abel, your brother? Chapter four, verse, verse nine, right? Whenever he asks, where are you? Or where is this person? He's really just giving a chance for someone to then present some kind of an admission. And then he confronts it. Right? He, he waits for the answer to then reveal something. And then he goes ahead and he deals with what was just communicated. So that's what he's doing here. He goes, uh, where's Sarah? And then uh, Abraham goes, uh, well, she's in the tent. And he's like, well, she's going to have a son next year right around this time. And, then, and he lets her laugh at this, right? She, she laughs for a second. And uh, before we even talk about the laughter, I want to ask, why is Sarah in the tent? Why isn't she out here when God is out here? Right? Why, why is she not out here? Why isn't she helping serve the guests, especially if God is the guest? And we might guess, oh, maybe it was improper for women to eat with men, which uh, some people try to say, but there's no evidence in history to support that. in in terms of customs of the ancient, uh, ancient world. There's actually a very odd answer to this. Women in this time stayed inside, indoors or in their tent, whichever, but they stayed inside when they were bleeding on their menstrual period, when they were bleeding from the way of the women. And they weren't supposed to prepare food or do anything like that uh, they were supposed to just rest. And you kind of see that happen later in chapter 31 with uh, this, this woman named Rachel, verses 33 to 35. Um, so, and part of that is because some people thought that uh, a woman's period was bad luck and even, uh, even gave off danger. So if you, were, if you were near a woman during that time, that, uh, that it would mean that you're going to bleed soon too in some way. And so they uh, had a connotation of bad luck to it or danger. But we know from verse 11 that Sarah had passed the way of the women. She had passed her, her menopause. And so she's, uh, she should not be able to have her period. She's, and she's preparing food, which seems totally okay. So how would this apply to her at all? And it could be that while she's preparing food, and by the way, this is, this is purely a guess. Okay? So I don't want you to, to take it as fact. But it's a, a purely a guess. It could be that she just, as she's preparing food, is when she started bleeding. That's perhaps when she started her period. And so she stays in the tent when the food is being brought out. She was already preparing the food because that was fine. But then when when she realizes she's bleeding, she's not supposed to do anything. She's supposed to uh, to, to just kind of let the servants take over at that point. Now, this would be an interesting moment since God has just shown up. And God said, this time next year, your wife, who's too old to have children and biologically unable to have children, is going to have a child. And at that moment, all of a sudden, biologically, there's a sign in her that she can now get pregnant. Whether or not that's the case, we don't, uh, we don't know for certain. But we do know that God says she'll have a child next year. And so that will happen. Now, remember, I said when, when God asks us where someone is, it's to evoke an omission and then confront it. Right, uh, And that's what he's doing. He says, where's Sarah? And then he lets her laugh at this whole situation. Like, okay, am I, am I really going to have a child at this age? Is that really what's going to happen? And so God then confronts that. Right, He, he deals with the fact that she laughed. And it, it's, uh, it's the, the, the hardest shutdown in the Bible, in my opinion. Verse 13, Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse uh, 14, is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And God said, no, but you did laugh. And then it's just, look at verse 16, it just moves on. Then the men set out from there, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Like, that's the end of the scene. Hey, why did Sarah laugh? Well, she thinks it's too hard for me, I'm going to do it, and she's going to have a son. And she's like, "I didn't laugh." And it doesn't even say she entered or you know, came out of the tent and came. In, maybe she's in the tent. Like, I didn't laugh. And God turns around. Her, you did. And silence. That's the end of the story. What is going on there? And first, why does the author even put that in? Right. That's that's a waste of ink. First of all, because it doesn't do anything to advance the story. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know. It's it's just a. It just embarrasses Sarah further. I'm sure every time she reads that part, you know, probably feels bad. But God calls her out. She laughs. She gets rebuked. But if you watch the rebuke, it's not really shameful. It is a rebuke. So, okay, she's embarrassed a little bit. But God isn't punishing her. God is reassuring her that he is able to do the impossible and that he will do the impossible. He says, I can do it. And I will do it. Is anything too hard for me? You laugh because you think it's impossible or you laugh because you think I'm unwilling. I can and I will. And God uses that moment to reveal something about himself. His rebuke, even if it stings a little bit and even if it's embarrassing, is the best thing that Abraham and Sarah could have heard. It didn't weaken her. It strengthened her and it encouraged her because it promised her a blessing. Well, the men leave from there, and uh, God has a bit of a conversation with himself. Right? He, he, the men leave. Abraham is w- walking with them to kind of send them off. Uh, and, uh, and here we get this moment where God is going to have a conversation with himself, which will function as a backdrop to then a conversation that he'll have with Abraham as they're walking. So we're kind of let in to this Uh, this moment where God is either thinking to himself, or he's talking out loud, thinking out loud uh, with himself. In in some way, the author is just kind of giving us a glimpse into the thoughts of God that that God has revealed to him, right? Um, God has already spoken to himself in the past, by the way. Remember, he says, let us make man in our image, right? He's speaking to himself in in chapter 1, verse 26. He also says, let us go down and confuse their languages in chapter 11, verse 7. So he does sometimes just kind of talk out loud uh, as far as the author conveys it so that we know what's going on in the mind of God. God reveals it to us that way, right? Well, here in verses 17 to 19, the author lets us in on something that God said to himself previously to give us context for what's gonna happen in verse 20. So let's look at 17 to 19. It says, Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, the central idea here is that God says, I have chosen him. I have chosen Abraham, right? Uh, Am I going to hide my plans from him? I chose him. I decided he's going to be my guy. So am I going to hide stuff from him? Of course not. Right, So God's purpose in choosing Abraham is also explained in that he's like, I chose Abraham so that his descendants would become great, they'd be a blessing to the whole world, uh, and they would keep the way of the Lord. They would keep the way of Yahweh. They'd be righteous, and they would be just. Now, if he wants Abraham to understand righteousness and justice, he must then demonstrate righteousness And justice. He has to show Abraham his holy anger against sin and wickedness. He must show righteousness and justice. Because the the righteousness and justice of God is different than the righteousness and justice of men. Right? We as people, we kind of excuse a lot of stuff. We think anything that we're used to must be okay. And anything that we're not used to, that's sin. And that's evil, right? So we excuse ourselves for the things we watch on TV. We, we excuse ourselves for the stuff we listen to in music. We excuse ourselves for the language that we use. We excuse ourselves the, about the way we talk about other people, right? We do all that. We, we just go, the way that I live, that's OK. That's like the, 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 the standard, the medium. I'm not going to call myself great. Just, that's acceptable. And then any, anything uh, above that is, is great. And then everything below that is worse, is bad, evil. And yet God's righteousness is a perfect righteousness. His standard is perfect and all men fall short. So God speaks to Abraham. He says in verse 20, this is where the conversation with Abraham starts. Then Yahweh said to Abraham, he says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God lets Abraham know he's going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to check it out to see if it's as wicked as he hears. Honestly, you know, God knows God doesn't have to see it, right? Uh, But by seeing it, then Abraham and the original audience who's reading this book, Israel, they would know that God as a righteous judge didn't just throw out a verdict without going to confirm it himself. Right? They they didn't know God. They didn't understand omniscience. They didn't understand, you know, th- th- those are the concepts that we understand, but th- at that time they didn't have a Bible. They didn't understand that stuff. So he says, you know, I have heard the outcry and I'm going to go and check it out. And I will confirm it. And if, if I confirm it and if it, if it's true, then I bring judgment. If it's not true, then I won't bring judgment. Right? God already knows it's wicked. He can hear bloodshed. And by hear, that's, that's more an anthropomorphism. He doesn't need to hear it. He, he's aware of violence and bloodshed and people crying out in terror, innocent uh, victims, right? Uh, if you remember Cain in, in Genesis chapter 4, God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, right? God personifies violence as a voice that calls out to him and that he must respond to. Sodom's sin is very grave, that's what, what God says. It's very grave. He's going to judge it, and he's going to let Abraham know that he's going to judge it so that Abraham understands God's righteousness and justice. And that must be crazy because the whole world is filled with wicked cities, right? And every time Sodom is mentioned, Sodom is mentioned as kind of the most wicked. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's emphasized that the, uh, that the city of Sodom was wicked, there are tons of wicked cities. Why is Sodom at the top of the list? And I'll do you one better, why is Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah always go hand in hand. They're presented as, as, a, a, as a bundle. And it seems as though their sin is similar. And it's not just those two cities, it's the cities in all the valley, the Siddim Valley. And it's, uh, you know, it's all these other smaller places, but Sodom and Gomorrah were the larger ones. And it seems like it was some kind of sexual immorality, as we'll see in chapter 19. In any case, God says he's going to go check it out. He checks it out for Abraham to know that, that, uh, that God wasn't guessing or God wasn't just reacting to rumor. He says, I'm going to go see it. I'm going to go confirm it by myself, on my own. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before Yahweh. Right? So remember... Uh, there are three men that, that showed up, and it seems like two went on uh, to Sodom, and then one seems to stay behind to talk to Abraham. And this is the one that, uh, that is kind of uh, referred to as Yahweh. Might be pre-in- pre-incarnate Jesus, we don't know. But, uh, you know, that's why God says, I'll go down and see. And the men went, and they, they went to go see, and the, because they represent him. They're like his, his avatars, and so he can, he can uh, work through them but one stays back. Uh, an alternate possibility, by the way, is that uh, all three men left, and then maybe the presence of God very specially kind of came down and dwelt there, maybe. And maybe two went to Sodom, and then one went to Gomorrah. We don't know. But it seems, I, I think that the the context says two men went to Sodom, one stayed back. Okay, Abraham speaks to this man, and this man, uh, you know, regards himself as God, but it says in verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city of Sodom. Suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be it, far, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Yahweh said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, Abraham is obviously worried that God is going to destroy the righteous just like he destroys the wicked. He's like, why would you treat them equally? Why would you punish everybody just for the sins of the wicked? Why would you punish the 50 righteous for the sins of the wicked? uh, How is that justice? If you're judge of all the earth, aren't you going to be just about this? And why would he be wondering this? Well, it could be because he, he has a nephew named Lot, and Lot lives... In Sodom, and he 's like, "Wait, are you just going to kill everyone there? Because what if there are some good people? you know what if there are fifty good people like you 're not going to kill everybody right that would that wouldn't be right verse twenty seven Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, meaning subtract five will you destroy the whole city for lack of five, right? Are you going to destroy the whole city if there are only 45 people that are good? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 29, again, Abraham spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And God answered for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And God answered, I will not do it if I find 30. And Abraham said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20, I I wonder if he's being clever here. I wonder if he thinks he's being clever. But he's like, suppose 20 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Verse 32, then Abraham said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose Ten are found there. And God answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, the central issue shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And God's repeated answer throughout the narrative is a resounding yes. I will do what is just. Abraham could have asked, uh, you know, what if there's only one righteous person? He could have asked that, but he seems to be starting at 50 and working down in units of 10. And when he hits 10, he would just go to zero from that point. So maybe he doesn't ask for that reason. I don't know. But uh, like as a kid, I would read this and it would burn in my mind. Like, wait, what if there's only one? Why didn't he ask? What if there's only one? Why didn't he just ask that? And I I searched for years, (laughs) you know, not searched actively, but just I always thought about that for years. And then one day I came across Jeremiah 5, verse 1, where God says, like, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. If I find one righteous person in, in Jerusalem, I'll pardon the city. And I'm like, ah, there it is. There it is. But Abraham is uh, having this conversation with God and he's not like negotiating. He's not like, God, I have a deal for you. How about if you find 10 righteous, you, you just spare the whole place? He's not doing that. He's not negotiating, right? He's having a philosophical discussion. He's saying, is it just, would you call it justice and righteous to treat good people just like you do bad people? Wouldn't that be wrong? To give the same outcome to the righteous and the wicked, that would be wrong. Which means that, Abraham isn't even asking God to spare the city, technically, right? Because that would be treating the wicked just as well as the righteous. He's not saying spare everybody, treat everybody equally. He's saying, wouldn't it be wrong to treat the righteous and the wicked equally? So what are you going to do? Are you going to spare the city? What are you going to do? And God says, if there are are righteous people in it, I'll spare the city. Well, that's, that's God's visits to Abraham. And Abraham is now left just thinking about this. And now God visits Lot in chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So if you, if you notice here, Lot is introduced in a very, very similar manner to Abraham in the previous chapter, right? Abraham was sitting at his tent door when the three men come. Lot is sitting at the city gate when the two men come. The two men who are now called angels in verse 1, right? Messengers. Abraham is the patriarch of his household, and Lot, by virtue of the fact that he's sitting at the gate, he's functioning as an elder. Uh, an elder, of a, a leader of uh, the city of Sodom. One of the leaders anyway. Not, not the leader, but one of the leaders. That's where, uh, that's where elders would sit, at a city gate, in order to adjudicate formal affairs. When Abraham saw the men, he ran to meet them, and then he bowed himself to the earth and said, "O Lord. And when Lot sees the men, he gets up to meet them, and he bows with his face to the ground, and he says, my lords. The author is using these similarities to kind of reveal something to you, that Lot is a lot like Abraham. Right? Because we've wondered, like, Lot went to Sodom. Did he defect from the faith? And yet, the author is presenting him in the same, the same light, the same portrayal as Abraham. And so he's kind of letting you know, just as Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, it seems as though Lot believes and it's credited to him as righteousness. Lot, could, have, uh, uh, Lot could, have, could not have stayed with Abraham, and so he had to leave. And, uh, and that's why he ended up here. He, he chose to go toward Sodom, but uh, he was with Abraham for much of the story. And you have to you have to kind of key in on this with Lot, okay, uh, Lot. Lot was with Abraham from the beginning in chapter 12, when God called to Abram and said, you know, like, uh, leave, your, leave your family's household and everything, and come and follow me to the land that I'll show you. I'm going to take you somewhere, and I'm going to bless you with land and with, with descendants. He said that, and Abram says, okay, let's go, and he takes his wife, and then his nephew decides to come along. There was no reason for Lot to have to go unless Lot believed there was something to this. Why would they leave the, uh, the wealth and the legacy of the family and the religion and the security of the family, to go and be foreigners living in tents among hostile peoples for the rest of their lives. There was something to Lot that was faithful, which God would credit as righteous. And so Lot had faith too, he believed too, and so he'll be referred to in the the New Testament as righteous Lot. But one key difference that you also should notice is that Abraham immediately recognized the men as God. He says, oh, Lord. He sees three men and he says, oh, Lord. Because he knows who they come to represent. And yet when Lot sees these two men, he says, my lords, which is saying sirs, gentlemen. And so it doesn't seem like he uh, readily uh, understands or recognizes who they are or who they represent. It takes him a while to kind of figure it out. Now, uh, the men here uh, aren't, aren't visiting to, to really just visit Lot and be like, hey, how, how you doing? Really, they came just to inspect Sodom, to judge its wickedness. How wicked was Sodom? Verse 4. Before the men lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shut the door after him and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Stop there. Now pay attention to the language used here, right? All the people of the city, all the people of Sodom, young and old, to the last man. So the author is employing emphatic language, repetitive language. He's using a merism to, to throw out to you again and again and again that every last man came out uh, to Lot's house and said, hey, who are those guys? Bring them out so that we may know them, right? Which is a euphemized expression of sexual immorality. They want to rape them. And Lot isn't exactly innocent here. Like his, if you're bothered by his response, you ought to be. He's offering his virgin daughters to them to be, to be raped and likely murdered. Now, don't pretend that Lot cared so much about protecting these men that he righteously offered his daughters to be brutalized. There was nothing righteous about that that doesn't make him innocent, and God is not honored in that. Like, if there were a better answer he could have given, he could have said, no, how about that? Right? No. Or he could have said, just like defile me if you have to, but don't touch my family and don't touch my visitors. He could have offered himself, but it says, I I take my daughters. He could have resolved something else. He could have said, I'll fight you right right here, down to the last man I've He could have done something a little bit more honorable than what he did. It is possible that Lot is sarcastically offering his daughters only to express how much he wants to offer his visitors. You know, he might be saying like, look, why don't you just take my daughters? You know, he might be saying that as like this exasperated like way to try to prick their conscience, you know, to to demonstrate how much he's trying to protect these men. But I don't know. It doesn't seem to be presented that way. Um, it, It seems as though he just actually was trying to offer his daughters as a, an alternative. Verse 9. But the men said, stand back. They said, this, this fellow, this, this guy Lot, he came to sojourn, right? He came to just kind of vacation here, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them, then they pressed hard against the man uh, against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, the men inside the house, the angels, the men inside the house reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Right? They struck them blind and then the men are just like groping for the door in their blindness. Verse 12. Then the angels, the men, said to Lot, Have you, anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before Yahweh, and Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. So here you have the men revealing that they're messengers rather than being God himself, right? Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, so apparently his daughters were engaged, contractually married, but nothing's been consummated yet, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for Yahweh is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. The angels strike the mob blind. They don't strike them unconscious or dead. And I always wondered about that. Why not just... Why not just kill them right there? Why not, why not paralyze them or something? But, but they just strike them blind. And that used to bother me until I realized that even after they're struck blind, miraculously, this mob still tries to go for the door. Does that not prove an extreme depth and commitment to wickedness. They want to rape these guys, and then they're struck blind, and then they go, oh, oh God's mad at us. They go, so? And they keep going for the door. Well, the angels tell Lot to take all his family members out of the city because they've obviously confirmed its wickedness by now, and so they're going to destroy it. And when Lot goes to talk to his sons-in-law and, you know to take them out of the city, they think he's jesting. Mocking, That's, it's, it's a more offensive word. It means that they're, they're bothered, they're offended by it. They think he's mocking them by, by saying that. And it's weird, because didn't the author tell us that every last man in the city of Sodom, young and old, every last man of the city, came to the house? Would that not include his sons-in-law? So would they not also be outside the city? And would they not also be struck blind? Lot goes outside. He doesn't go to another house. He just goes outside to, to them. And he tells them, hey, let's go. Let's go. We got to get out of this place. God's got to destroy the city. And, and they're offended by this. They think he's like ridiculing them. Again, the commitment to wickedness, the depth of wickedness. In either case, the sons-in-law were men of Sodom. They chose whom they really belonged to. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And the, the angel said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which, which means little. It's like there's a little city here. Now, you can clearly see that God is rescuing Lot, even though Lot doesn't really want to be rescued all that much. He wants to, but he's like lingering and he's like, ah, oh, do we have, ah, oh, man, what am I going to do? And there's, there's doubt, there's hesitation, there's something going on there. He lags, he lingers, he doubts, he thinks he needs to live in a city or else he'll die. He's like, how, how can I possibly live in the hills? I got to live in the city. I can't live in the countryside. You know, I, I need, I need to be around like people and stuff and whatever. He, I mean, he's kind of basic, right? He, he needs his Starbucks. He needs his Wi-Fi. I need to be in like a city. Come on. that's just a little one, right? It's like, it's like a suburb. Let me just go there. And the angels have to urge him and they're like, you know, get out of here. Just go and go. Don't look back and just go. Go all the way to Zoar. I'll spare Zoar because, because you asked, you know, but just get out of here. And if you notice, this is God doing all the rescuing. Lot gets no credit for any of this. Lot is a problem. He's, he's the obstacle, right? He's the one making it difficult for him to be rescued. How much of Lot's rescue can Lot brag about? None of it. He did none of the work. God did all the work. And that's exactly how it is with you and me and our salvation. When God rescues us. I mean, we make it difficult for God. But he still does it. And he does all the work. The basis of Lot's salvation was not his own righteousness and qualifications. But it was by the mercy and compassion of God. Which is what's kind of highlighted in verses 16 and 19. Right? Yahweh was merciful to him. God showed him kindness. And so Lot requests to be given safety at Zoar, which then gets spared because he's there. He's going to get spared because he's there, which is exactly what God said, right? If there are 10 righteous persons in a city, I'll spare the whole city because of the righteous persons. And Lot's like, let me just go to Zoar. And God says, I will spare Zoar because you are there. All it takes is one righteous person. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, then Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. Sulfur, by the way, is also called brimstone. So God reigned on Sodom, fire and brimstone. That's where this, that expression comes from, right? Uh, then Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone from Yahweh out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before Yahweh, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Verse 29. So it was. That when God destroyed the cities of the, of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Right? That's the sum up. This is the reminder that this whole episode with Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities in the valley of Sodom uh, were overthrown, but God was remembering Abraham's uh, plea, his prayers, the philosophical discussion that they had about righteousness and justice. Right, it, it shows that that's what this chapter was about. It was about the conversation he had with Abraham. Zoar was supposed to be destroyed. It was just as wicked as Sodom. It was just as wicked as Gomorrah. It was supposed to be destroyed just like all the other cities in that valley. But since Lot was there, God spared the city. And so Sodom, Gomorrah, all the valley, all the inhabitants are destroyed by fire and brimstone, sulfur and fire. And I, uh, I guess... I guess I just wonder, what exactly happened? You know, is it just fire and sulfur came from the sky? That seems random. It seems like fire would be enough. Do we need to make it smell? Right? Why do we need the the fire uh, uh, along with sulfur? Well, Lot leaves uh, Sodom with his family at dawn in verse 15. And destruction starts in verse 23 when the sun is high in the sky which means that uh, if he left at dawn and then the the sun is high in the sky, he couldn't have traveled more than 10 miles. And the angels say, get to Zoar. We can't begin the destruction until you get there. So it's only a short distance, 10 miles. He's just a skedaddle, right? He's got got to move uh, at a a fast pace, but get out of here. And then uh, then the angels go, "We, we we can't destroy anything until you arrive. Now, if you, you have to remember back now, re- rewind a, a, a few sermons. Remember in chapter 14, in verse 10, that the valley of Siddam, where Sodom and Gomorrah are located, is filled with what? Bitumen pits, tar pits, right? It's filled with bitumen, and, uh, which is, yeah, you can just simplify that, call it tar, right? And all it, all, all it takes in this area is an earthquake, doesn't even have to be a big one. It just has to be the right one. An earthquake to ignite the mineral salts of the area. That area is filled with sodium, potash, magnesium, calcium chloride, and, and bromide. You have all these, different, uh, all these different mineral salts in the area, and, uh, and then these noxious gases that are, that are released by them. And the right kind of earthquake, or even a single lightning bolt, if God wanted to do that, uh, would cause the whole valley to ignite and explode, which is why God says, I can't do this until you arrive. Yeah. you like, well, if you're on the way and I explode the place, you explode too. So that's not okay. You have to get to the safety zone. And then, you know, I, I cast my spell and then boom, right? This is an instantaneous destruction. It's not like you see fire, you know, and, and, uh, and over like the course of 20 minutes, it's not like that. It's, Uh, something happens and uh, a very rapid burst of power is unleashed and it destroys everything. The cities, the people, all the plants on the ground. That's what it said. No one would have time to escape. Even if they tried, the fumes would be suffocating. And if the people of the city were still blind at this time, maybe the, the blindness didn't wear off yet if it were going to wear off at all, but if they were still blind, it's even more impossible for them to get out of there. Which direction would they go in? Lot's wife gets turned into a pillar of salt for looking back. That always used to scare me. Like, wait, you can't just even like look back? What if you, what if you have to tie your shoe and you do this and you just kind of like, you know, you just glance and then boom, salt. Like that that's scary to me. That, that, that seemed like, that's not fair. Like it doesn't, that doesn't seem like you shouldn't be punished for just like you know looking at something, right? Well, at least in this context, there are other things you shouldn't look at. Anyway, um, she looks back and then she turns to salt, and that's uh, that, that's always a question to me. And yet, the more I look into this, the more I think that this is not a, uh, an issue of where she looked, but an issue of why she looked. The implication in the text is that Lot's wife disobeyed the angel's instructions, right? They said, "Escape quickly." Leave here, don't look back, and go and flee to the city, to, you know, to Zoar. And they said, don't look, they specifically said, don't look back. And again, I don't think that's an issue of turning your head or, uh, or letting your eyes glance. I don't think it's that. Remember, what, what has to happen before destruction can rain down? They have to arrive at Zoar, right? But it says that Lot's wife while they're going, she's behind him and she, she looks back and then she turns into a pillar of salt. Does she turn into a pillar of salt before the fire and brimstone? They haven't arrived at Zoar yet, so fire and brimstone hasn't started yet. So when does she turn into a pillar of salt? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, they're on the way. Is she just salt and then Lot's like, what's going on? And then they get to Zoar and then the fire and brimstone. I don't think that's what happened. They weren't at Zoar yet. I, I think that the, the passage... Reveals to us that she looked. It's not about where she looked, but she she looked in her heart with longing, like she looked back and she wanted to be there. And I uh, I I would present this case to you with the words of Jesus in Luke chapter seventeen, verse twenty-nine. Luke 17, verse 29, Jesus says, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, in verse 31, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And the turn back there doesn't just mean your direction. It means like turn as in change your direction and go back. The look back and the turn back are also synonyms for go back. Lots wife was not judged for turning her head and glancing, especially cuz nothing happened yet. Fire and Brimstone didn't even rain, you know, she's just they're just walking, right? But she was judged for turning her heart yearning for what was wicked and going back for it. Right to go like forget it. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to Zoar. I want to go there. You're crazy. And turning back and going. Everyone in in the city of Sodom, if they didn't burn up from fire, they would have been covered by the noxious airborne chemicals and the mineral salts in the air. And their bodies in that situation, as they died from suffocation and poisoning and all sorts of other uh, potential causes, their bodies would have been covered By the minerals, they would appear as pillars of salt. It seems to me that Lot's wife left Lot to return to Sodom. And either on the way or after she arrived, judgment rained down, but she didn't burn up. And so her body was left, dead from the fumes and chemicals and everything else. And she was a pillar of salt. Maybe, maybe, or maybe God just instantly turned her into a pillar of salt. He could flex like that if he wants. Look, I, I'm spending a lot of time—too much time—explaining and describing the fiery destruction. The author doesn't seem to do this. Just like with the flood, the uh, the author doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the judgment and the destruction. He puts the focus on the salvation. He focuses on whom God rescues and the fact that God is the one doing it. And that's exactly what's going on in this text here, that the focus is on God rescuing and showing the salvation and the deliverance. God's justice and his mercy are perfectly expressed here. Remember God said, if I find righteous people in the city, I'm going to spare the city. That's exactly what he did. He spared Zohar. But what happened to Sodom? There was a righteous person in it. He extracted the righteous person. Then he destroyed the wicked. Because that's what God does. God doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. God will remove the righteous before he destroys the wicked. That's instructive for us when we start to learn about rapture and tribulation. Because God will remove the church, rapture, before then he sends tribulation, his wrath. Well, let's get to the epilogue in verse 30. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. So he left the city that he insisted on living in, right? He he went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, she said, Our father's old and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ani. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, we don't know why Lot was afraid to live in Zoar, but maybe it's because he went to Zoar, and and Zoar was just as wicked as Sodom. So he's like, you know what? This, This city's doomed too. I saw what God did. And so he's so traumatized and stuff that he's like, I, I don't want to be around here when fire rains down. So he, maybe he goes to the cave for that reason, cave, uh, cave in the hills. But all of that is to say that Lot survived and Lot had sons, Moab and Ammon, uh, which are two of Israel's frenemies, right? Sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're enemies. Um, and and it's, it's by way of incest. Lot with his daughters, they have children together. And Lot seems to be somewhat exonerated by the author, in this passage, in that uh, the daughters have to get him drunk and he didn't really realize what happened at all. So he wasn't making an informed, uh, consented des- decision. You know, he, he just, it happened. Um, so it seems like the, uh, the author's trying to get him off the hook a little bit. Um, Israel would then understand Moab and, and Ammon, you know, the Moabites and the Ammonites, to be allies in some sense, right? You're, you're from Father Abraham's nephew, so you're kind of like our cousin people or our nephew people or something like that. You know, you're, you're relative people to us, but they're not the covenant people of God. They're not descendants of Abraham. And so Moab and Ammon will sometimes protect Israel throughout history, and then sometimes they'll afflict Israel. But, uh, you know, side note is, at least one Moabite does get saved in a, in a glorious manner, and that's Ruth, Book of Ruth. It's not as obvious in the English... Uh, rather than the original Hebrew, but rescuing Lot is a direct response to Abraham's request, right? Uh, Abraham asked in 18.23, he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Are you gonna sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And that's the same language that's used in chapter 19, verses 15 and 29, right? We're not gonna sweep away the city until you get out of here. You know, that's the, uh, what's going on. Uh, what that means is, Lot is regarded as righteous, which is so weird to me because uh, he makes a lot of dumb decisions in this chapter. You look at him, you're like, he's he's kind of not righteous. I don't know if you'd call him wicked outright, but he just doesn't seem all that good. But the New Testament doubles down on this. Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse six. Uh, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Three times Lot is called righteous, and once he's referred to as godly. That's weird, because Lot does some stupid stuff that we just saw. He's far from perfect. He's far from righteous. And if you think about this, we think of Abraham as righteous, but the more you're walking through the story of Abraham, you find that Abraham does some dumb stuff too. So why is Abraham called righteous? And it's, it's simply because they believed, they trusted God. Not perfectly, they made mistakes and stuff, but they trusted God. And God said, okay, well, I give you credit as righteousness, right? I'm not going to count your score based on your righteousness. I'm going to give you my righteousness. Lot made so many dumb decisions. He moved near Sodom, which was more wicked than all the other cities. And he chose to live there. And he chose to raise his family there. In the midst of the wickedness, he he has selected husbands for his daughters from the wicked city. He seemed to be willing to sacrifice his daughters to a bloodthirsty mob. He's utterly ineffective in saving his sons-in-law and and getting them out of the city. He hesitated in leaving the doomed city. He insisted he would die if he didn't live in another equally wicked city. And he ended up doing what he he was uh, telling the sodomites to do, which is lying with his unmarried daughters. His drunkenness and his shame feel oddly reminiscent of Noah's drunkenness after the flood. But this time it's like it's worse and it's it's more shameful. Why would Lot and Abram be called righteous? Why would he credit his righteousness? You know, I'm that's mind-boggling to me and yet the more I think about it the more I'm glad that God does not measure my righteousness by my deeds. And Same with you. Because if he did that, we would fall short. Even if you're already a Christian. Even then, as a Christian, you don't don't do everything perfectly. Right? If left to ourselves, we lag, we linger in sin. And yet God seizes us and he saves us and he does all the work. He takes our sin on the cross and we get his credentials from Christ. Lot was saved because he trusted God. And so it's kind of like, wow, he did all this bad stuff, and yet he was saved. And so it's like, well, that means I can do bad stuff and still be saved. Uh, There's a a truth in that. But look at what he lost. Lot moved away from Abraham. Why? Because they were too prosperous. They had too much stuff. They had too many animals, too many servants, too, too much property, and... All, they, they couldn't coexist because they had way too much stuff. And so Lot moves near Sodom, he li- and then he moves into Sodom, and then he lives in Sodom, and then he just kind of becomes like a leader in Sodom and stuff. What happens to all of the stuff that he invested in? It exploded. It burned. What's Lot left with? Nothing. He lives in a cave. There's a a sober warning there. He moves outside of the blessing. He moves outside of the the promise of God. And if you think, oh I'm saved, so even if I sin, I'll be fine. And if you think that, you don't realize that you are moving outside of blessing. You're moving outside of something really great and glorious. Who really ended up paying for Lot's sin? His descendants, his children, Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. They were always right outside the promised land, and they never received the blessing because of Lot's decisions. Final thought. When you look at these passages, when you look at these two chapters, there's something that, uh, that you pick up, which is that God spares a wicked city because of a single righteous person in there. And I think that that's something for us to just kind of throw around in our heads because you don't know who God spares by you being there. Right? What, a, what a mysterious thought. But even 1 Corinthians 7 says, like, if you're, if you're already married to an unbeliever, there's a sanctifying power. Like, God is protecting is setting them apart from, like, the destruction and stuff in some way. It doesn't mean they're automatically saved and go to heaven. It doesn't mean that. But it means that there's some kind of divine protection that you exude because of the fact that you belong to him. You are righteous. Not with the righteousness of, uh, of your own from the law or anything like that. First Philippians 3 will tell you that. Right? You're not found with the righteousness that comes from yourself, but you're found with the righteousness of Christ. He switched records with you. you. You get his righteous record. He gets your criminal record. And so because of that, the people that are in your immediate vicinity are benefactors of some kind of a blessed protection. We don't know exactly what that is, but it's something. If God is calling you to salvation, stop lagging and stop lingering and stop clinging to the sin. Leave that sin behind and follow after him and go where he's telling you to go. Leave behind the things that he says to leave behind because that's going to burn up. That's going to explode. I remind you in Hebrews 11 that Abraham went to live in the land of promise as a foreigner and he lived in a tent the rest of his life. But Lot insisted on living in in a place where he had a house and he was comfortable in a city. And Abraham said, that's not where my comfort is. I'm waiting for the city that God is going to build. If God calls you to salvation, stop lagging, stop lingering. If God calls you to salvation, don't turn back. Don't long for what you left behind. Don't return to it. Those who return to it are like seeds that sprout up, but before they bear fruit, they burn up. And they aren't saved. In the end, God's justice and mercy are both expressed. The wicked are judged, and the righteous who are found with the righteousness of Christ are saved. God is both just and merciful. He is righteous and and compassionate. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. I want to say, Lord, how important it is for us to remember again and again that you are righteous and just, that you have wrath against sin like Abraham we also must know that that we might live in the way of the Lord help us to love what you love and hate what you hate because we by nature want to just stay in the city where it's comfortable and lavish where we can indulge and yet Knowing who you are, it torments our souls. And we're so glad, Lord, that even in our failures, you can seize us by the hand and lead us out. And you can rescue us despite how we lag and linger and how we keep trying to turn back. You keep saving us. You save us every day. God, we pray that we would take hold of the call to holiness and righteousness, that we would leave behind that which is going to burn and walk faithfully, trusting you toward promise and blessing. Keep teaching us through the story of Abraham what faith really is. Faith is understanding your righteousness and justice and trusting you in it, not in the stuff of the world. As we grow in that, may, we, may you be glorified and worshiped in this place. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.